My name is Kelly Malott, and I'm a PhD candidate at University of California, Irvine. My work deals with looking at how a common compound found in air pollution called benzoapyrene can deplete oocytes in female in the female ovary, and how that exposure can actually change those the oocyte quality later on in life. And I hope that one day my work will contribute. I, don't, I actually don't have an answer for that. I'm going to be very honest with you. <laughs> perfectly fine. That's perfectly fine. We can talk about that too. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in. This is my grad life. <laughs> I like it. I like it. folks. Welcome to the This Grad Life podcast. Here we chat with researchers about their work and the inner turmoil that often comes along with living life on the bleeding edge. I am your host, Dr. Ted Yu. If you can't get enough of science and or dread, head down to our official website, www.thisgradlife.com. There you can read more about this episode's guest. Finally, if you find value in this podcast, you can also find links to support us. Joining me today is Kelly Malott. She is a researcher at uh, Cal the University of California, Irvine, um, in the Department of... So I'm in the School of Medicine. School of Medicine. My program is an interdisciplinary program that crosses public health and School of Medicine, ah. and it's called Environmental Health Sciences. Okay. We're like, we know of each other because we are active in science communication yes. and other things like that, but we never really had the opportunity to just kind of sit down and chat, so... No, I think really... this is our first, like, two-hour hangout. I'm yeah. excited about it. <laughs> oh, yeah, me too, me too. It's gonna... I'm very excited as well. So thank you for joining. Thank you for the invite. Let's uh, start off, as always. Could you tell us about the work that you do? Yeah, so I work in what I like to call a Russian nesting doll model, where I look at how exposure to a common compound found in air pollution, that's called benzoapyrene, during pregnancy can actually alter the eggs that are developing, so the oocytes that are developing inside the ovary, and potentially affect the quality of the eggs and actually the number of the eggs in those females that are exposed in utero. Gotcha. So when you mean nesting doll model, like, so yeah. I guess how, what's, what's nesting and how deep does it go? Yeah. So in, in terms of the direct exposure to benzoapyrene, we go three levels. So we have our mother that is pregnant. In my case, I work in a mouse model. So if I refer to my animals, that's what I'm talking and about, or my mice. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> so I expose a pregnant mouse to benzoapyrene. She's the outside doll that you see that's sitting on the shelf, that nesting doll. And then inside of her, she, when she's pregnant, is the fetus, the female fetus that is developing. So that's the first level. It's what we call the F1 generation. And then the second level is the eggs that are developing inside of that developing fetus. So there's three levels of exposure there in terms of direct exposure. And that 
There's a lot of data that's known about that, that when we're exposed to a whole myriad of things, including the compound I'm studying, benzoapyrene, there's a bunch of things that can happen in terms of overall health of those three, in terms of those three levels of exposure. Then we go into the transgenerational, which is that F3 generation. So they're technically inside the nesting doll, but they're not directly exposed. So you're studying three generations, essentially, but they're all kind of, two of them are not born yet, though. Right? Yeah, it, that's why I like to kind of refer to it as a nesting doll, where it kind of evokes this really great imagery where there's something inside of something inside of something. Um, and most people at some point in pop culture or maybe in their everyday lives have come across some sort of nesting doll. At least that's, that's the hope. <laughs> if the mother is exposed to benzoapyrene, mm -hmm. how, how far down the chain does that go? So you only, you're studying three because that's what's present inside the mother at that time as a fetus is developing. But do you know if it, the effects go down, spiral down even further than that? We don't, but we think that they do. Uh, so there's evidence in the literature of exposures in utero affecting generations that are not present in the uterus. So that F3 generation. So in this case, like the great, the great, great grandchildren could potentially have health effects. So we've seen this in dioxin and people are familiar with dioxin through like mosquito prevention. It's a byproduct of pr producing Agent Orange, those sort of things. Um, we've seen this in exposure to dioxin, but no one's shown this in females in exposure to gross air pollution products or specifically my compound. And I'm actually carrying that this exp I'm actually carrying out my generations and my mice into that next generation to see if there are any effects. Where d where is benzoapyrene found? Everywhere. All the bad things and a couple of the good things in life, unfortunately. So I'd say it's a product in air pollution. Um, that is because it's a product of incomplete burning of organic materials. So it's found in vehicle emissions, tobacco, cannabis smoke, both the mainstream and the side stream smoke and the secondhand smoke. And it's also found on burnt and barbecued foods. So, you know, some nice tasty brisket is unfortunately laced with benzoipyrene. Um, like your burnt toast, ah. all that, you know, some of the good things in life too. <laughs> so essentially, whenever you have some sort of organic compound that's burnt, yes. it'll produce this sort of thing. Gotcha. What, what are the sort of the negative effects that come with exposure? There's a whole bunch of them. So, but that... It's usually from high chronic exposure. Now humans are a highly exposed human that's exposed to vehicle emissions that lives next to, let's say, both an airport and a freeway and eats barbecue three times a week and smokes is still going is going to have a pretty high level of exposure. And, and if it's chronic, then it could be potentially bad in terms of being carcinogenic. So it could induce cancer in the liver, the lungs, the kidneys. Uh, we've actually seen it in the ovaries of the mice that are ex uh, exposed in utero. So the F1, the daughters that are exposed in utero to benzoapyrene actually have an increased incidence of ovarian tumorigenesis. And it reduces fertility, 
So I guess in terms of reproduction, I should talk about that, you know, since that's what I do. <laughs> it reduces fertility primarily in females and sometimes in males. It's not quite as potent of um, a reproductive toxicant for males, um, but males have a little bit more leeway in terms of they're always producing more gametes. They're always producing more sperm. Females were born with a set number of eggs or a set number of oocytes. And so they're a little bit more of a precious resource. And unfortunately, they tend to be a little bit more sensitive to environmental exposure. Could you talk about sort of the things that you've discovered so far in your own work? Yeah. So in my own work, what I've been looking at is I have a couple of avenues that I'm going about to explore how this compound can affect female reproduction. I talked about one of them, which is carrying that out into the F3 generation. But then the other part is trying to figure out when is that exact developmental window of sensitivity. So in terms of developmental biology and exposure, it is all about timing of exposure. Because mammal mammalian development in utero is very, very highly timed and highly regimented. And it's well documented that certain pieces Certain organs and certain cell types develop during very critical windows, very specific windows. It's not all over the place. It's very highly programmed. It's been evolving for thousands of years at this point. And, you know, it's automated, so, more or less. So some organs don't grow up faster than others. It's correct. A strict yeah. process to this. Yeah, actually, the brain doesn't finish fully developing until well into adulthood, which is why there's so much controversy over the alcohol age and or the limit, the age limit for being allowed to drink alcohol being 21 versus 18, all of that, because our brain is more highly developed when we when we turn 21 as opposed to when we're 18. Um, and that is if we kind of reduce that down to a very truncated scale in terms of gestational windows for human pregnancy. Different things develop at different times, and the re the reproductive system develops very early on in pregnancy. So I'm look I'm looking at two very critical windows of the egg cell development within that reproductive developmental window. In humans, that equates to around weeks one through three, and then weeks ten through thirteen. So in weeks one through 13, the what we call the primordial germ cells arise in the developing embryo. And these are the precursors to the oocytes or the egg cells. And they're also the precursors to sperm. So they're, they're I guess, non-differentiated in terms of sex. Then, and they develop during that probably first one to two weeks, and then they actually migrate from where they develop to the developing gonad or the developing testis or ovary. And that ends around week three. Then they stay kind of dormant for a little bit. And then around weeks 11 through 13, they are they undergo what we call meiosis, which is turning them into those haploid cells. So then they have the requisite number of chromosomes that they need in order to develop a fully formed diploid human once they're fertilized by the sperm. So I'm looking at the differential window um, if one is more sensitive than the other in terms of benzoate pyrene exposure. 
Gotcha. So what have you found so far? There's no difference. (laughs) At least for the oocytes. We don't know for the sperm. I haven't looked at the sperm. Um, That's a project for another grad student. (laughs) Gotcha. So could you run by with uh, sort of the day-to-day of your uh, lab life? Oh, man. I actually had this question when I was interviewing an undergrad today to join my lab. And she asked me, what does your day-to-day look like? And I was like, oh, crap, I'm going to have to answer this for the podcast later. What does it look like? (laughs) Um, And the answer is variable, uh, which I'm sure that is how it is for most grad students. Um, So I have my main dissertation project. Then I have um, another side project. And then I have another project that I'm helping out on. Um, and then I have my own little pet project. Um, so you got a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, I got a lot of stuff going on. And I just got something else thrown on my plate in terms of analyzing RNA-seq data that I'm like floundering with right now. So I guess that's another project. So I guess I have five projects that I'm helping out with. This is what happens when you have a small lab and a very active lab, a small lab and a very active lab. You kind of have to help carry the load with a bunch of other things. I wish I could just kind of be in my silo sometimes, but I kind of like it that I get to have my hands in a lot of different pots in the lab. One, because that means publications. That's what we all think about. (laughs) It's the currency in science, unfortunately. Um, But two, I get to develop a whole bunch of different skills. So... One day I could be in the morning doing a dissection of mouse embryos to culture their ovaries. And then in the afternoon, I could be helping to write up a manuscript on one of my other projects, or I could be prepping samples to run on uh, the mass spectrometer in uh, at UCI. Or I could be helping my undergrad and teaching them um, the techs and techniques that I need them to learn to help me out on the project so then I can go do other things <laughs> or analyzing data um, or maybe trying to find time to get coffee somewhere in there. I usually use, I usually find a way to sneak away to get my afternoon Americano. I just like dip out of the lab without telling anyone be like, oh, where'd Kelly go? I don't know. <laughs> Caffeine, the drug of choice of many uh, graduate students. As it should be. So whatever happened to that undergrad that you were talking about? I have one that graduated, and she was absolutely fantastic, and I miss her so much. Um, But now I have another one. He left for the summer. He's coming back, and um, he's going to be helping me out on my transgenerational project. So I have a lot of the tissue for my F3 generation already. So the great-granddaughters that were exposed, yeah, the great-granddaughters that were exposed to benzoipyrene, that weren't exposed to benzoipyrene, excuse me, I shouldn't say that, that come from the generations that were exposed to benzoipyrene. Um, He's going to be assessing the oocyte counts for me. So I need to train him on that. Uh, And then I got another new undergrad coming in that I don't know, but I met her. Um, I will be teaching her the mouse room duties because with most mice labs, our mouse room is the lifeblood of our labs. And we like our undergrads to know how that works first before they start to get their hands dirty on the lab bench. Um, so I'll be helping 
teach her that and then hopefully bringing her on to another piece of my project that I really need to get going because I proposed a lot for my advancement and I kind of want to prove my committee wrong that I can do it. <laughs> right. If I remember correctly, you recently advanced. Yes, I did. Yeah. And just for those of you that are wondering, uh, the advancement to the C major test trial that all of us grad students have to go through. Basically, we go up against a panel of our committee members, professors in the field, and, you know, say, hey, look, this is what I've been doing. I know what I'm talking about, and uh, <laughs> this is valuable research, and they have to agree with you, essentially, for you to pass. Yeah. And that happens. So congratulations. Thank you. That's a big I've milestone. been deemed worthy. <laughs> it's a big deal. It's a big deal. It is. So you have all this stuff on your plate all these other projects, and you have these undergrads to take care of too, which could be a bundle of work, but you know, which may pay off if they get trained well and, you know, they prove themselves to be competent. But, you know, (laughs) it's a crapshoot. I know what I was like when I was an an undergrad, so, you know. So how how did that work out? You you said the lab was small, but you guys are active. Yeah, so right now in the lab, we actually have four grants, including my own, that are active um, that I just actually got funded. So, uh, yeah, we're extremely active in terms of our bench science. Um, And it's just me and our now new lab manager and our staff scientists and then our PI. And then we just have an army of undergrads that help prop up this science for us and we (laughs) i see your face right now and you look horrified you guys can't see because it's a podcast but i'm like that's a lot of stuff going on (laughs) which is completely unlike my experience um they put me on a secondary project uh once and the only reason that didn't continue was because our lab collapsed (laughs) um yeah. Otherwise, I'm pretty. That it would have been. I would have been knee deep in proteins and yeah. other things that I don't really enjoy. <laughs> no, no, I take that back. I enjoy proteins more than I used to. But anyway, yeah. So, so you guys have four grants to yes. contend with, and like, are, these are not necessarily on the same subject. I'm guessing, yes. So they all are roughly in the same vein. A lot of them deal with oxidative stress and environmental exposures and then reproductive outcomes. So that's kind of grossly what I like to tell our people our lab is about. And usually I get the question, what is oxidative stress? Um, I just tell people, you know, think of how people tell you antioxidants and blueberries are really good. It's because they help mitigate this thing that's called oxidative stress. It's the flip side of that coin. Um, And it can be very damaging to cells in that it can age them prematurely through DNA damage, through protein damage, um, and that sort of thing. Uh, So we deal grossly within that topic. And all of our grants fall somewhere under that very large umbrella, which seems very niche, and you're right, it is, but it's a very large niche umbrella, as most things can get, you know? We're starting to get into more of like the quantum level in terms of knowledge. (laughs) Um, One of our grants we just got funded is through NASA, and that's looking at radiation exposure and ovarian histology. So, like, looking at... um, 
the gross t- at the tissue level what radiation can do to ovaries, which is very important, especially if you know climate change makes this an inhabitable place inhabitable place to live. A lot of people are going to want to start going off into space, you know, and we need to know what's going to happen to our ovaries when we go out into space because we don't really know that yet. We know what happens to sperm, which is not a lot. <laughs> they're they're very resilient, you know. Sperm are very resilient creatures. Um, oocytes are not, and that also comes with that also includes radiation, radiation exposure. No bueno for um, oocytes. So that's one grant. Another grant is looking at mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, and how that plays a role in oocyte quality. Um, the grant that I just got funded is looking at benzoapyrene exposure um, at the tissue level for embryonic mouse ovaries and the cells, the germ cells that are developing inside of those mouse ovaries. And then the other grant is encompasses that transgenerational exposure. That's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of stuff to keep track of. Oh, no, we have another grant, too. Oh, that's boy. The- <laughs> Very active. See, I can't even keep them all straight. <laughs> I'm even working on a side project in, on this grant. And I was like, oh, yeah, this one. It's only the vein of my existence right now. Um, so we're in collaboration with another lab on campus. We're looking at direct exposure to actual air pollution in Orange County, exposing mice directly to that, female mice, and then looking at the ovarian outcomes at for that. And so far, we also see the same thing. We see depleted oocytes in the ovaries. It's just, it's, it's not good. I, d- I don't dabble in, like, happy research. <laughs> yeah, pollution isn't great for us. Who would have thought? Okay, quick side note. Yeah. Um, so mice being exposed to the air around here in yeah. County. How do you guys, how does that work exactly? Do you guys just, like, take the cage outside? That's what I'm imagining. That's kind of adorable. I know, right? It kind of evokes that. You're just like, oh, that's really cute. You get to like play in a field of mice. No. Um, So this is the lab that we collaborate with. They have actually set up a an exposure system where they pull air in from outside. They're near the um, 405, the 73 and John Wayne Airport. So for people that are outside of Orange County that don't know what the 405 is, it's one of the main highways in California that is classically always gummed up. Yep, all the time, all the time. (laughs) All the time. The 73 is another highway that gets quite busy around rush hour. And then John Wayne is an airport. So they're right there. So, you know, really, really awesome pollution. Lots of... Unburnt <laughs> compounds, I'm sure. It's perfect. So they pull in all of that gross, disgusting air, and they condense it down in just into just the particulate matter. So there's a bunch of different things that compose our air pollution. We all know about carbon dioxide. We all know about methanes. And some of us might know about the nitrous oxides that are out there. Um, but is what is starting to get a little bit more attention now are the particulate matter, particular, particularly the particulate matter, <laughs> <laughs> the particulate matter that is less than two point five microns in diameter, 
And that's because that particulate matter can get very, very deep into our lungs, very deep into the alveoli, and that's what makes them very toxic. That's actually how benzoapyrene gets into our system. For the most part, when we inhale it, it gets in through being attached to that particulate matter. So what this system does is it takes and it filters everything out to just have condensed PM 2.5, so particulate matter 2.5 microns in, in diameter and less. And then it starts redistributing all of that particulate matter to mice in these specially designed cages that um, allow them to breathe in, that have them breathe in the particulate matter air at a constant rate. So we know exactly how much particulate matter they're getting over that certain course of time. And they usually do it, I believe, from 6 a.m. to about noon. So morning rush hour is encompassed in that. Um, and then they we have a control group that's exposed to just ambient air. Is it possible to do something like now that we've had this great collection of data regarding, oh, this compound will do this to us and that compound will do that to us and then all we do is just take a sample of the ambient air and figure out what's inside and tell okay so based on the sample that we have of the air here this is kind of what we the ad adverse health effects that we might affect ex expect from the area yeah i think that's a really good question um so if i remember correctly, I think the EPA kind of does that a little bit, at least by region. So the EPA at the federal level is broken down into various regions. Cal EPA, people in California tend to know that. Um, but then um, there's like the Southwest region, like the Midwest region, because, you know, federal EPA, very large, needs to, we're a big country, we got a lot of people, we need to break it apart. Um, and so I think by region, they break it down in terms of what you can expect. Um, and I know down here in California, in Southern California, we have the South, Coast, the South Coast Air Quality Management District that actually monitors all of that in our air as well. Going back to the myriad of projects that you're working on. Myriad. <laughs> My project menagerie <laughs> <laughs> menagerie oh boy two questions how is that all going to fit into your thesis and i, I see your face i see your face now oh boy uh and how which one of those would you consider to be your project yeah um so this was kind of the million dollar question I had for my advancement was how do I puzzle all of this together into one big, beautiful story that I can tell my committee? Um, you, you answered know, it well, apparently, since you passed. Yeah, they, they, they did all right. You know, <laughs> they liked it enough. They thought I was at least competent. Um, well, I take what you can get, I guess. I mean. <laughs> No, it actually it went, it went very well. I'll tell you a story a little bit later okay. on about a little earlier, right before my advancement, that was. But in terms of how all of this fits, um, it kind of fits under that umbrella of oxidative stress, benzoipyrene exposure, reproductive outcomes. That is our big umbrella, and we kind of all fit under that a little bit, all of our projects. Um, and that's kind of, I think, how I like to think of how they weave together. 
So I have two projects that are directly related to each other. The transgenerational project, which is those Russian nesting dolls that I was talking about. That is my the spine of my thesis, of my dissertation. That's what I like to think of it, it's the spine. It's the thing that connects it all together. And then I have another project that I, the, in the, um, from the grant that I just got funded, that it looks, looking at benzoipyrin exposure to the embryonic mouse ovaries. That I would consider my baby um, because I kind of incepted it and was like, I want to write, and I came to my advisor and I told her I wanted to apply to this one statewide grant for it. And she looked at me like I was crazy because this was in the winter right before my advancement. And she was like, are you a psycho? You're also TAing. And I was like, yes, I am. But let me tell you my logic. <laughs> like, you're not wrong. I probably am psycho. <laughs> Like jury's still out, but in terms of my thought process behind it, I really want I really wanted to do this project and I didn't have anything motivating me to write anything up on it. It was still all floating around as ideas in my head. And I saw this grant as an opportunity, one, to get grant writing experience, and two, to finally get all these ideas down on paper and have something that forced me to do that. Um and then on top of it, I was like, well, you know, even if I don't get it funded, then I still have two thirds of my thesis proposal already written. I think that's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, certainly figuring out what questions to ask is quite the battle in itself. It, oh gosh, it is. Yeah, and then how like how do I ask those questions? How how do I address those in those specific experiments? And how do I make sure my experiments tie together but don't depend on one another? Is in art form in and of itself. And so that is my baby. I'm very happy with that baby. <laughs> I haven't done any experiments on it, but I'm very happy with it so far. And when I start actually running my experiments, they'll change, but that's okay. You know, I'm still in the honeymoon phase with it. I'm like, oh, it's okay. We're good. <laughs> um, and then I have the third project that looks at oocyte quality mature oocyte quality, and I'm looking at how the absence of a very common antioxidant called glutathione can affect oocyte quality. Having it not around means that the oocytes are not quite top-notch quality. Shocking. <laughs> right, I'm noticing a trend here. Pollution yeah, is not yeah, no, it's, I told you, it's not good news. It's, not, it's never happy talking about toxicology, especially reproductive toxicology. I feel it has like an extra tinge of just doom and gloom. Right. <laughs> I remember reading something very recently um, about how the need for orthopedic surgery, like braces and stuff like that. The stuff that I got on my face right now was maybe a recent phenomenon, mm -hmm. maybe only 250 years ago yeah. for that need ever come. They're looking at all these fossil records of prehistoric humans. Their teeth are perfect. Their jaw alignment is perfect. And here we are. Or here I am, at least, with my TMJ. And, you know. I was also gross with my teeth. It's yeah. fine. Oh, 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 it's <laughs> awful. But, yeah. Uh, and I wondered if that maybe it's because of all this exposure that we now get. Uh, perhaps probably due to our life, uh, myriad of things. Um, our lifestyle has changed. Exposure of things have changed. Mm-hmm. Is that something you might 
that maybe so, or what do you think? I mean, in terms of teeth, to answer your question directly, I don't know. But in terms of just general human health, I do think that it definitely plays a role. Um, so there's quite a bit of published published work um, in the literature that shows that exposure to varying types of compounds, a lot of them being plasticizers. So one thing, one common compound that people really know very well is bisphenol A, BPA. Uh, and exposure to that over time can actually worsen our health outcomes. Don't quote me on this and if BPA actually is linked to increased obesity, but I know that endocrine disrupting chemical exposure is. BPA is an endocrine disrupting chemical, so I wouldn't be surprised. Um, so I know a little bit more on like that vein, like, you know, what types of exposures alter our health outcomes more in terms of our metabolism and in terms of our, obviously, reproductive quality. But I wouldn't be surprised if there's a myriad of other things that have worsened our health <laughs> over time. Lead being one of them. Oh, boy. Lead. Oh, oh boy. Can of worms, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, boy, is it. Lead pipes have gone back for quite a while. The Romans even knew lead was bad for you. So, and yet here we are. Right. <laughs> How did you fall into this line of work? Actually, first of all, so you're in the medical uh, medical sciences department. The School of Medicine. School of Medicine. Yeah. School of Medicine. <laughs> um, but you're more in the field of toxicology. Yeah. So I guess, so what was your undergrad in, first of all? Cellular molecular biology. Gotcha. And so now you're in a lab that does sort of toxicology? Yeah. So or... I like to say reproductive toxicology, mm. um, just to be a touch more specific, gotcha. you know, just to really drive home that niche. <laughs> so how did you fall into that line of work, that this field? Yeah. Um, so when I was in high school, I took an environmental sciences class, and I learned that Women and children are the most vulnerable populations in terms of natural disasters and environmental exposures. And this enraged me. Like, I got seething mad. I remember walking home to my mom and like bursting through the door and being like, did you know about this? <laughs> and my mom was like, what? No, this is, who are you? <laughs> Go have a snack. I don't, I can't deal with this. Um, but... I just, it lit a fire in me. I got so angry and I needed to know more about why because it just felt like such a cruel injustice that half the population, not including children, but half the popu half the adult population is more vulnerable. That, why? That's a silly thing. It's a silly fact to be true. Um, and it turns out that it's because there's just lack of research into basic female biology. And it turns out it's because male scientists are sexist and they happen classically, stereotypically. I shouldn't say that as like grossly. I understand that most, there's a lot of, you know. Yeah, certainly uh, <laughs> historically has been true. Yes, yes, that is certainly true. Yes, historically. Um, and they just believed that women were essentially small men. 
which is obviously not the case. We know this now from a whole bunch of different studies that have come out. One being that women um, don't have the same, um, what is it? The same symptoms in terms of a heart attack. They don't have that left shoulder pain, that left arm numbness. They actually get pain in their lower back. And on top of it, an aspirin regimen doesn't help prevent heart attacks in women like it does in men. So like that's that's just one basic example for how little we know about females and how much we know about male biology. And when I found this out and I learned that this was the primary reason why women are more, more vulnerable, I got even more angry. And I decided to channel that anger and become a part of the solution as opposed to just screaming about it. <laughs> My parents tend to tune me out when I start to get very worked up about something. <laughs> and so I decided to make myself be more even keeled and, you know, become an academic, at least for now. <laughs> well, at least for now, yes. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I imagine being in toxicology and being in reproductive toxicology, uh, you know, being in a field that cares about human health, there's plenty of reason to be enraged. Yes. Uh, this day to day, particularly around... I guess sort of the policy decisions that happen, um, like, well, this makes sense. Great, we're gonna not do that. <laughs> how are, how do you deal with that in your day to day? See, if you turn on the news, it's like all the time. Yeah, um, it's hard. It's very, very frustrating, especially when you have in a when you. T Especially when you have an administration that isn't as open to making policy from science, then it becomes particularly enraging. You know, evidence-based policy has been shown to work over and over again and has actually improved society, <laughs> but we tend to ignore that in favor of money um, and enriching the already very rich individuals um but i like to so i have a couple of family members that are more business minded and i tend to butt heads with them a lot of times because i'm quite more on the altruism side and at least in terms of protecting the environment if not for the environment then for the sake of human health because we know our environment influences our health it is not a one-way road. It is a back it is a two-way road. And while we're destroying the environment, it sure as shit is destroying us. <laughs> it's just and that's because of what we are putting into it. It's not because we're all getting attacked by Venus flytraps. Right. It's, we put it into the sky, we're gonna breathe it in later. And exactly. Like you reap what you sow, essentially. Um and I butt heads with them a lot over this, but even they have come around to oh, the Clean Air Act is actually important. It's like, yeah, did you not know about the London fog in the 1950s? Like, go take a look at the pictures of the LA skyline from back in the 60s and take a look at it today. That is because of informed policymaking. Certainly <laughs> is a reason why California leads the way when it comes to emission standards, because we live in a valley, most of us. Yes. <laughs> and the smoke settles. Yeah. And, you know... We ain't going to breathe that. No, we don't want to do that. It's always interesting to see how different people deal with the sort of 
this existential dread in that third arm of uh, that logo on my podcast. Um, I know for me, I the default response is to just be like, ugh, and just be depressed <laughs> and be like, why, why even bother anything, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, I'm an energy researcher. Yeah. No one, no one listens to us either. Yeah. So, you know, that's always fun. Um, <laughs> do you, are you engaged in any extracurricular activity? Because I, I, there's a trend here usually. Uh, if you're doing a lot of stuff, you tend to do more stuff on top of that stuff. Yeah, no, I um, life. I tend to think that I'm Wonder Woman. I'm usually incorrect about that. <laughs> usually. <laughs> Not carte blanche. Um, so I am actually the first AGS representative for the School of Medicine graduate students. AGS um, being Associated Grad Students? Yes. Yes. Which is the... Student government for grad students yes. on campus at UCI. Yeah. So before I got involved, I um, the grad students for School of Medicine were unrepresented because no one knew we existed. Besides, obviously, our own administration and then the campus at large. But AGS itself thought that we were encompassed by like biosci or something else but we're our own population with our own administration we don't belong to the school of biological sciences um and the med students themselves like the actual md students they got reps and when i started asking questions they're like oh the med students are your reps and i was like i don't know one med student how the heck are they supposed to know what our day-to-day -day is like and how they can represent our needs adequately when they are rightfully off trying to manage their own needs, which are very disparate from ours. Um, and I kind of started getting all these fumbled answers, and it was very annoying. Again, academic bureaucracy, trying to weed through it. And luckily, I actually, um, the dean of our school of medicine, he likes to have lunches once a quarter with various students both medical and grad students. He does separate lunches because we're, again, we're separate populations. Um, and I was invited to one of them. And we were talking and it was a couple of grad students, including myself. And at the end of the lunch, he was like, all right, guys, I got to get rolling. But is there anything that we touched that we didn't touch on that you guys want to talk to me about? And I was like, actually, I have a question. Why is this happening? Why do we not have representation? Do you know what's going on? Do you know who I can talk to about that? And he had no idea it was an issue. And of course, when you go to the dean with something and they get this fired and they get fired up about it, which he was, he was very upset that we didn't have representation. All of a sudden, fires start getting lit and a pathway starts to emerge. Um, so we got our we got a slot a write-in slot on the ballot for the elections because thankfully this was actually happening this happened right before the AGS elections and our administrators came to me and they're like well you fought for this now we need someone to fill this slot otherwise we look stupid <laughs> uh, and I was and then they looked at me and I was like all right I guess that's me Let's do this. All right. Um, so I'm actually really excited about it for now. Again, um, I might change my tune at the end of the year. I might find it to be more academic bureaucracy that I dislike, which I've 
assume will probably happen, but um, so far I'm very, very excited about it. And I get to sit on a committee for student health insurance, which is also will also be very interesting. And hopefully I can try to help out with that because we can always have better health insurance, always. Um, so I do that and I'm a rock climber. Um, I have a dog by myself, um, but then my partner who lives up in LA, he's an MSTP student and he has two dogs. So between us, we have three little monsters <laughs> um, and they are also my extracurricular activities because, you know, they're dogs and they're very pushy <laughs> about getting attention, which I willingly give because they're just so darn cute. Um, and my partner, he's also an extracurricular activity. <laughs> I would <laughs> classify him as that. No, I'm kidding. He, <laughs> but you know, he, we're, we're both in grad school, so we find a way to balance that. So that's something else well, we could talk about. Yeah. I think it does. Being in grad school and having someone else being in grad school. Well. Yeah. And he's up in LA. I'm down here in Orange County. So that in and of itself is a barrier. Um, but yeah, I'm also on, I was on the student council for our graduate professional success program at UCI, which is a, it was an NIH funded program for expanding the repertoire of soft skills for PhD students. So I was sitting on that council. Now this is turning over into a new program and they're kind of absorbing some other programming on campus. So they will be re-upping their council. Um, I may or may not decide to join it again. Again, like I said, sometimes I think I'm Wonder Woman. Other days, I don't. Sometimes I'm wrong. <laughs> so it depends on when that comes out. If it, that's one of those days where I think I'm Wonder Woman, I'm like, I can do this. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, certainly with righteous anger comes this desire to do all this stuff. Yeah, I have a lot of energy. Uh, I've always been this way, though. I've was raised by a woman that was just like this. <laughs> still is honestly i think my mom gets less sleep than i do because she's doing more stuff than i am somehow still i don't know i don't get it she actually is wonder woman so you said you're in academia for now channeling your energy this way what do you mean by that is there or do you have other plans once you graduate or what what are your ideas there so i want to leave academia um, I would be open to coming back to it, but I want to leave it for now. I'm advent. Sorry, I keep on just like looking at your blinds. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I I'm an adventurous person, and I've been in academia too long, and so I need to see what else is out there. I just I'm clamoring to know because I need to. <laughs> I need to know. I guess that's what kind of makes a scientist is like, I need to experience it. I need to experiment with it. I need to get my hands dirty with it to decide whether or not I like it. Um, and I honestly think that 
the broad field of sciences in general is going towards that model a little bit in terms of having this two-way road between academia and industry. And I think academia is starting to see the writing on the wall, at least I would hope so, that they need to be open to allowing scientists that leave academia to come back and to go back and forth. Because I think that that actually just breeds better science for all of us. Um, so yeah, I think that, you know, whatever that form takes, me leaving academia, um, I'm open to it. I'm open to all different options. If there's some recruiters out there listening to this, you know, <laughs> I'm open to everything. Um, I Nothing is off the table, essentially. I'm open to staying on the bench and sticking with being a hardcore scientist, at least for now. Um, I'm open to moving on to do something else and let's a little bit more soft skill oriented in terms of science communication, like what you're doing, getting a little bit more nitty gritty into that. I'm open to that. Um, open to fourierring into policy, not politics, but you know, policy. <laughs> um, pretty much anything. So. We'll see where the wind takes me. I don't know. For those of us that are not very familiar, yeah, academics tend to frown upon academics leaving academia. It's just like, oh, you're abandoned. Oh, we don't need you anywhere or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's um, not the greatest atmosphere. But that being said, I'd have to, I want to mirror your sentiment here. Um, I know a, a friend of mine, he is a, uh, he's a coder, he's a programmer, mm -hmm. he works in industry. Um, then he'll say, like, yeah, all the there's a lot of people that teach this stuff that are actually quite bad at it. <laughs> well, they know the basics, they know what to teach, but when it comes to doing the work, they're not very good at it. Mm -hmm. So he would say that's actually a great advantage to go to industry, do some work, and then come back and then teach from that perspective. And adds, and adds only adds more. Yeah. I think I would agree with that. And I think it's important just because of the way the academic wheel has been turning. It is we're going to end up with a vacuum in our sciences sooner rather than later, because there's all these professors that have tenure that are not leaving. And there's a makes it very difficult in, in order for us Ph.D. students who maybe would want to be an academic professor, very hard for us to get one of those jobs and get one that is secure. Yeah. Like that job security is extremely important. I think especially for millennials having grown up in a recession, we're all terrified of job security. I think that's a general sentiment. Like we want job security. You know, I I'll work eighty hours. Just give me job security, please. Health insurance. <laughs> give too. me a four hundred one k. Job oh security God. and insurance. I will work 80, 90 hours for you. <laughs> Don't quote me on that, please. <laughs> so I I do think that sooner rather than later, the academia is going to end up with a vacuum. And I think that's going to be a big issue because we prop up our because our research, our American research is propped up by academic universities, by those R01 universities that get those big grants. And if we once all these tenure professors start retiring, there's going to be a gap. I 
maybe I'm going, maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I've been wrong before. It's one thing PhD has taught me is to, <laughs> I've been wrong before. I'll be wrong again. <laughs> yeah, it happens. Uh, yeah, something we all learn, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been a constant worry of mine as well, actually. Uh, me, I'm like, oh. I'm on the other side of that. I'm like, oh, I'd like to stay in academia. But the reality is, like, yeah, you're right. There are no more. There are. There's a lack of tenure track jobs. You out need there, at people. least three postdocs. Oh, yeah. With Minimum. at least three publications in oh, high yeah. impact journals each. Oh, community colleges, even like that, even community colleges. Yeah, I feel and like you that. need to have intense service. It's ridiculous. It's, it's way competitive, and there's a lot of. PhDs coming out that are being cranked out. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of these jobs, so yeah. Yeah. The industry is starting to look good. Yeah. Um, or just running a podcast, I guess. <laughs> Not that this is making me any money. Um, yes. You know. uh, yeah. Cross my fingers. Fingers you guys crossed. Can see this. Knock fingers on crossed, wood. So, you know all of that. <laughs> donation links in the website. <laughs> oh, excuse me. Would you say that perhaps? So, in the sentiment about leaving academia, is there any of the frustration about research in there as well? Is it... I know you said it was because of your adventurous spirit, but mm-hmm. is, it, is it... Does the... Um, does the nature of your work, does your the research topic at hand, and how it deals with human health and how we seem to not care that much about human health, is that any... Is that in any way a factor in that? So I think I'm one of the lucky grad students in that I'm very, very excited about my topic and about my project. I don't think I'm the rule at all. I think I'm the exception to the rule. I think that I lucked out. I got an amazing mentor and that... I was very honest with her about what I wanted to do and my goals, and she was very accepting of that. And I was very lucky because I didn't have to put myself out there. I could have just pretended to be like any old grad student that was willing to take on any project um, and that a lot of grad students pretend to be. They, Or maybe not pretend. I don't think that's the greatest word. Just we tend to be a little bit more just like, yes, please let me have you, like, let me be in your lab. I want to work under you. I want to, okay, fine. You don't want that project. I'll take it. And I think that that's what will happen when, oh God, no, I think that's a, I'm stumbling through my answer right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, so I'm, I'm lucky. I, I don't see that universities are really invested in research into reproductive biology. There's quite a few that are. That like there are. They exist. They're out there. I know this because I'm a part of a society that focuses primarily on reproduction and it's a big conference every year. And I know that they're out there and they exist. Um but I think that there's the funding for that is highly, highly competitive because it's so sparse. Like, whereas vice versa, when you look at Alzheimer's disease research, for example, that's also very competitive for funding and very competitive for support and very competitive for projects. But there's no 
and that that's because there's so many people so interested in it because they're so excited about it because it needs to be researched that even though we have this surplus of utilities available to us in academia to study Alzheimer's disease, that just begets more surplus of people flocking to it. Um, so I guess it's kind of like a chicken or the egg situation. You had a story for us about your advancement. Oh my gosh, I did. Okay. <laughs> so I've actually, I'm partially embarrassed by this story, but I mostly find it hilarious because of how embarrassing it is. Um, and I find it hilarious because I passed. <laughs> so I had my advancement exam at 10 a.m. And, you know, decorum dictates that you at least get your committee coffee, if not f fresh pastries, when you have a meeting, especially your advancement meeting. You, know, you want them in very happy. Though on record, you're not supposed to bribe them? No, you are not supposed to bribe them. But, you know, coffee. Coffee. They're going to want it. Especially Sorry. at 10 a.m. when they have yes. to come in and scrutinize your thesis in extreme detail. They're going to want coffee. <laughs> I just wanted to point out how that works out. So I didn't mean to interrupt. No, that's okay. That's okay. Thank you for the disclaimer. No bribery. My candidacy was not achieved by bribery. <laughs> no, I was just more pointing out the fact that, yeah, we're not supposed to bribe them. Yeah. But they all expect coffee and pastries. Yeah. Um, so well, I'm rolling my eyes. None, it's a podcast. <laughs> saying that it's a podcast and doing something, saying people can't see it because it's a podcast. It's actually my favorite gag. <laughs> of running this podcast. <laughs> I love it a lot for some reason. Sorry. Oh, please, please. <laughs> love it. Um, so I got them all coffee. And one of my professors on my committee walks in. There's already one in there. I'm talking with the one at the desk, and I'm like, oh, you know, welcome. Would you like to have some coffee? And he goes, oh, yes, sure. Do you know when you actually defend your dissertation, you're going to need something harder than that. And I, like, I ruminate for a second. I think to myself, coffee is a stimulant. What is a stronger stimulant than coffee? And I immediately blurt out without thinking, cocaine? Then <laughs> <laughs> obviously he keels over laughing. He's like, no, you're going to need beer. And I was like, oh, I overshot by a mile. <laughs> The other professor that's there, he's like falling out of his chair laughing at me. And I'm just like, oh, God, I can't recover. Like, I can't be I can't backtrack and be like, but I don't snort cocaine because then they're going to immediately think that I do. Just as a disclaimer, I've never done illicit drugs. <laughs> I've never snorted cocaine in my life. I wouldn't even know how. But yeah, so essentially one of the professors on my dissertation committee now thinks I'm a cokehead awesome yeah he grew up in the 70s in san diego i refuse to believe that he didn't at least come across cocaine I'm not saying he snorted um, but you know i refuse to believe that he doesn't think it's hilarious <laughs> now that you're past that particular milestone yes. do you feel any different about grad school yes and no so, um, like I said, I think I'm one of those rare grad students that really loves their project. Um, 
And so I think that I have like a slightly different outlook on grad school now that I'm through my candidacy. I'm more like super stoked on it. I'm like, let's roll. Like, let's do this. Let's hit the ground running. Um, I mean, I didn't immediately after my candidacy because I was just like catatonic for about two weeks. That's normal. It's a normal response. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. It's a very high stress situation. You know, it was also in the the depressing, awful heat of Southern California in the summer while trying to study, trying to stay cool, trying to keep my hands from sweating and slipping on the keyboards as I'm typing. It's like there, so, you know, there's that too. It's a whole other like I think makes the stress go up a little bit. <laughs> but um, so yeah, catatonic for those like two weeks afterwards, and then I was like, all right, let's go, totally ready. Let's like rock and roll with this. Um, mainly because I had the genotypes for one experiment that I really needed to start running and optimizing. And I was like, oh, crap, like they're going to get too old. I need to actually use them. So that kind of kicked my ass into gear a little bit. Um, And now I just kind of got the ball rolling. But then our director for our retreat asked me to present um, a research in progress talk for our retreat that just happened yesterday. And I had presented for this retreat for the past two years, and she asked me if I would be willing to. And I was like, I mean, not really, because I just advanced and I presented at this retreat for the past two years. I think it's someone else's turn. And she's like, oh yeah, don't worry, you won't have to. And then she put me on the schedule anyways. And so I got real salty about that. I'm very annoyed. I'm still, I'm still, it's still like a little knife twist every time I'm talking about it. I'm like, God, <laughs> my word means nothing. <laughs> like, oh, it's so frustrating. So in that respect, I'm like annoyed by the grind that is the academic bureaucracy wheel. That's the most annoying part. I'm ex- still very ecstatic about my project. When I start running those other experiments, I'll follow up with you and let you know if I'm still ecstatic. <laughs> yeah, certainly ride that high while it's still there. Yeah, I'm trying to. I'm trying to keep that, but I'm like, that academic bureaucratic wheel is really starting to kill my vibe. <laughs> I'm just like frustrated by it now because I just got an email about my um, committee. There's a stupid rule, like the stupid majority rule that the majority of the people have to be in your program. But the way that they write it, it makes it seem like your dissertation committee only has to be three professors. And so then the majority of those three have to be from your program. I decided I wanted four. There's like this whole other thing. And now it like switches over to a majority. I don't know. Is I don't even understand what's going on. I just got an email about it. And they're like, what do we do? And I was like, I thought it was very clear who I wanted on my committee. I don't know what to tell you. You guys are idiots. You guys are creating this problem for yourself. <laughs> so in the beginning, we have this little audio introdu- self-introduction that I have everyone do, right? What do you talk about? Tell me about your work and tell me how do you think it's going to impact humanity. And you were, oh, you yeah. mentioned you were fumbling about it for a little bit. Is there a reason for that? Yeah. So my fumbling is because... There's no way to not be exposed to benzoapyrene. It's a product of incomplete combustion and of organic materials. 
and like there's ways to diminish our exposure and so i guess my where i struggle with is everyone a lot of people are like oh this could be a drug this could be this and i'm like this could be information so then you can reduce your exposure <laughs> you know it just it doesn't have that same oomph factor in terms of a direct impact and i think that psychologically because i'm a human i struggle with that um because you know i like that tangible that tangibleness of it you know like oh you can have a drug to counteract this effect in the brain or this and like the liver yada 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 you can't bring oocytes back once they're gone and dead they're gone um what you can do is you can reduce your exposure to harmful things that reduce the number of oocytes in the ovary. And kind of, and trying to drive home that point is a little bit more difficult. Um, and sometimes I for, even I forget, someone that does research on it, I forget that that's a positive outcome of this research and this knowledge. I forget that. Um, but I think that it still is very important and is something that we myself included, should always keep in the front of our minds. What are we being exposed to on a daily basis? And I think that that's where science literacy comes into play, where the populace and our policymakers need to make an effort to be science literate and to really understand what are they being exposed to. And when people, for example, in California see that Proposition 65 label, which states that Exposed, that you will be exposed to chemicals on this piece of merchandise that can be a carcinogen or a reproductive hazard, I think that they should they should look at that and kind of try to think twice about it. I know we see those Prop 65 labels everywhere, and so it kind of just becomes redundant. We're like, yeah, 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 cancer, whatever. But I think that that should serve as a little mind trigger, a little, like an anchor, be like, okay, is this something that I really want to do. I think tobacco is an easy thing. Like benzoapyrene and other comp other toxicants that are similar to benzoapyrene are found in tobacco smoke. Both side stream, second hand, all side stream, second hand and mainstream smoke. What can you do about that? Well, you can stop smoking. You can reduce your exposure to second hand smoke and you and side stream smoke by just simply asking the person that you're around if they're smoking to kindly put out their cigarette or walk away for a minute if they really need it. And same thing with marijuana smoke. You don't have to smoke marijuana if you don't want to. Is that a hazard, an exposure that you willingly and knowingly take on? Okay, you do. Fine. That's awesome. Whatever you want to do. But do it consciously do it knowingly. One thing I'd like to acknowledge you for is that you didn't contrive a reason <laughs> like on the spot. Like you said, you're you. like, mm, struggling. <laughs> and I was like, cool. That's kind of refreshing, actually. Yeah. Because, you know, because it's something I've gotten very good at, contriving a reason for why this research is a good idea or something like that. I think for energy, it's super important to always have that canned response, though. But I, it can feel yeah. contrived, yeah. like you said, and can feel forced. It is contrived. Because, <laughs> you know, I'm the one saying I know it's contrived. It's like, <laughs> let's be real here. No one, no one cares about my work. Well, not, well, there are people that care, but, you know, 
not not anyone that matters quote unquote yeah. you know which is a shame yeah um so yeah but you are right though it does have to be prepared in some ways yeah right do you find that additional rage that comes from that sort of thing easily channel channelable back into your work because that was sort of the, the intention behind it anyway, right? In the first place, we came into here because these are legitimate, legitimately enraging facts, and we should be angry about them. Yeah. Um, like I said earlier, I really wanted to be a part of the solution as opposed to just screaming about it and tweeting about it, I guess, now. But at that time, I don't think Twitter existed. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't think it did. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think. No, I'm not that young. Twitter didn't exist when I <laughs> when I started having that and that rage. Um, yeah, so I just I try to always keep that in focus. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's really, really hard to keep that in focus and to keep that as a motivating factor, especially like like you said, when you tend to get beaten down that no one cares. Um, for me, it's just people tend to have more uneducated opinions about my research than not. Um, and that's because I come from a, I work in a field that's very highly politically charged on two crossroads, you know? There's environmental exposures, so like air pollution, Super, super charged. Clean Air Act, you know, highly charged. You would think that clean air to breathe wouldn't be a controversial topic, but somehow it becomes one. Um, and then I also work with female reproduction, which is somehow controversial as well. Um, it's beside me. I don't get it. Either. I don't get it. Um, I just like to tell people and I like to think to myself, like, I'm just looking for a way to try to help people have help healthy babies. Like, that's not controversial. <laughs> Your deadpan look is... <laughs> you, 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 I would hope so. One would hope. I'm just, I'm just trying to help people have healthy babies and make healthy choices so then their babies' babies' babies can be healthy when they're long dead and gone. You know, survival of the species and such. Maybe with climate change it won't matter. But <laughs> Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> Another can of depressing worms. All oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Energy researcher. I get it. Yes, as I get an it. energy researcher, that is the incessant thing that I'm sure just beats you down day to day. Yeah, literally is every day. Literally every day. <laughs> every Not a day goes everything. by. I I graduated. And I don't even do this work anymore. Like, yeah. I run a podcast now. I don't even like. <laughs> I don't even do energy work anymore, and I'm still angry about it. Then not a day goes by. Literally not a single day goes by when I'm not worried about it. Yeah. It's terrifying. It is. But you do what we can. All right. Just try to make this corner of our world a little bit better. <laughs> yeah. Just try. <laughs> Baby steps, right? Little things make up big things. At least that's what I tell myself. It's hard to... Yeah. Um, Certainly, it's difficult to keep that sentiment in mind when all the problems seem so big. Yeah. Yeah, it does. The, the, the 
the narrative of rugged individualism and you know affecting change around you, uh, you realize, hold on now, like that's not where the problem is. The problem is systemic. It's bigger than everybody. Don't tell me to hold on. This, yeah. you, you guys are the ones being disingenuous. You guys are the ones doing this and telling me to f- like shape up. Hold on. No, 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 no. no. That doesn't fly. It's institutionalized you know? at yeah. this point. Yeah, it's yeah. ridiculous. It is. Absolutely. Um, but I'd say, I mean, they got to do something. Right? Yeah. In some ways, they're not wrong. It is all <laughs> I can do. Exactly. Which is a shame, but yes. Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> just like depleted our energy in that like five second conversation. We're just, oh we both just descended like, oh god. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We had a lot of good energy going, but. Oh, I'm sorry. I brought it up. <laughs> oh, no, don't be sorry. Like, this is exactly why I. This is why this podcast is here, after all. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, thank you for that. Thank you for dragging me down. <laughs> we were up in the clouds, all bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. Like, no, let's come back down to Earth. <laughs> Happens to me at least daily, probably five times a day. I'm just oh. like, woohoo! And then, fuck. <laughs> yeah, every day. Yeah. Every day. Yeah, it's a roller coaster for sure, this life. This grad life. Why? Oh, man. <laughs> Second favorite. No, hold on. I take the... That's my favorite joke. The gag where I say, you can't see me, I'm doing this. That's my second favorite Mm -hmm. joke. And now we roll credits. Ah. (laughs) Final question. Yes. When you got a stress eat, what do you eat? Anything with melted cheese. Melted cheese. Melted cheese. Love it. I grew up on microwave nachos. I know it's kind of gross, but I love them. Obsessed with them still to this day. Uh, sometimes when I want to stress eat and I need dinner, I will literally just make myself a giant plate of microwave nachos. <laughs> there was uh, there was a blast talking to you. A lot of fun. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs>